Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us for the next episode of the Rocky Mountain Myrex Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hoffberg, and today's episode, we are going to explore recent research on the safety planning intervention, and we're really excited to be joined today by Drs. Barbara Stanley, Dr. Greg Brown, and Dr. Lisa Brenner. And today we're going to chat about their recent publication in the September 2018 issue of JAMA Psychiatry. And this study is called Comparison of the Safety Planning Intervention with Follow-Up Versus Usual Care of Suicidal Patients Treated in the Emergency Department. So I'm going to go ahead and let our guests introduce themselves, and we're going to jump right in. So welcome, Barbara, Greg, and Lisa. Hi, Adam. This is uh, Barbara Stanley. I'm from Columbia University and New York State Psychiatric Institute, and where I wear two hats. One is the type of research that went into the safety planning intervention study that you mentioned. And then the other is a hat for New York State where I developed suicide prevention trainings uh, throughout the state. Great. Well, we're really happy to have you on the show today. Uh, Greg, let's turn to you next. Hi, I'm Greg Brown. I'm a clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at University of Pennsylvania, and I'm also a research psychologist at the Visit for MIREC at the Corporal Michael J. Crescent's VA Medical Center in Philadelphia. I've been doing research for a long time with suicidal individuals, uh, mostly with uh, cognitive behavior therapy for suicide prevention and then safety planning. Awesome. Welcome. And Lisa, how about you? Hi, this is Lisa Brenner. I'm the director of the Rocky Mountain Myrick, and I should note that this is my first time actually being on the podcast, so I am an avid listener, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on today to talk about this important study. Great. Well, again, we're so happy to have you guys on the show. Now that we've learned a little bit about each of you, I do want to take a moment to go through some background on safety planning before we jump into the current study. So uh, we're really delighted. Barbara and Greg, we're of the developers of the safety planning intervention. And I was wondering if, Barbara, you could start us by uh, walking us through really the conceptualization and the development of the safety planning intervention. Sure, I'm happy to do that. So safety planning had its origins in several forms of CBT. But the safety planning intervention that we developed in the form that it is now derived from Greg's original study of cognitive therapy from, for suicide prevention. We, Greg and I were collaborators on a project for suicidal adolescents. We were tasked with developing um, some sort of clinical management strategy to keep adolescents safe while they got the so-called real treatment to prevent suicidal behavior. So these were adolescents who we were treating as outpatients, and they had made a recent suicide attempt. In the context of that study, we developed the safety planning intervention as it pretty much as it looks now. And as adolescents were leaving the study, when they were finishing, we did interviews with them and asked them about what was helpful. And one of the things that they talked about as being very helpful to them was having um, a safety plan. And so that gave us the idea of pulling this out as a brief intervention. And so that's really how it started. And we happened to present the intervention at a meeting at which VA clinicians were present and Jan Kemp, 
who was the head of suicide prevention at the time, noted, thought that it would be a great intervention to be used in the VA. And so that's how it got taken up by the VA. Great. So it sounds like there was really some excitement generated from this initial work. And, um, you know, with rising suicide rates, uh, this sounded like a really promising intervention to implement. In the VA, definitely that this was an issue that the VA was grappling with in a uh, very significant uh, manner because of the rising suicide rate. You know, we, we started doing this around 2008. The VA was grappling with a terrible problem then, and this intervention was um, just a novel way of trying to help suicidal veterans. Excellent. Well, uh, Greg, could you take us a little bit further into what's involved in the safety planning intervention? And also, um, when we're thinking about the emergency department setting, why this might be a particularly good fit for this intervention. Okay, happy to do that. Um, I think most of you probably know that the safety planning intervention consists of six steps arranged hierarchically, and generally the idea is to develop personal coping strategies and resources of support that range from going from internal or within self strategies um, to external or social or professional strategies. So the six steps are, one, identify personal warning signs uh, that an impending suicidal crisis is occurring or about to occur. Two, developing internal coping strategies that distract from suicidal thoughts and urges. Three, to identify family or friends who are able to distract from those suicidal thoughts or urges or social places that provide the opportunity for interaction. Step four, identify individuals who can help provide support from the suicidal crisis. And step five, listing mental health professionals and urgent care services to contact during a suicidal crisis. And then finally, it wraps up with step six, lethal means counseling for the making the environment safer. And the way the intervention works, it starts with recognizing your warning signs that indicates when to use the safety plan and then generally begins with those internal coping strategies. If those strategies are effective for reducing suicide risk, then you stop the intervention and you proceed on. If, however, they're not effective, then you move on to the next step of the safety plan and you continue working through the steps of the plan as needed in order to ultimately do reduce risk for suicide. So the reason that we thought the ED was a good place to intervene is that for this type of intervention is that people may come into the ED setting uh, following a suicidal crisis or a suicide attempt and their only contact with the mental health services may be in an ED setting. And so the idea here was to provide a brief intervention within the ED so that patients can at least um, uh, have some tools that they can use to uh, reduce suicide risk. A lot of people who come into the ED may be referred for either inpatient care or outpatient care, but especially those who go to outpatient care, there may be a long period of time before they engage in treatment or they may never engage at all in follow-up care. Um, some people just don't want the treatment. We thought the safety planning intervention in the ED was a opportune uh, kind of period in the patient's lives to kind of provide the intervention. 
so can I just add a couple things to um, to Greg's points? Absolutely, um, please. So one of the things that it's important to note, although often it's mental health clinicians who deliver the intervention, it was not designed to be delivered only by mental health clinicians. A broad range of clinical staff can learn to do this intervention. The, the other thing I wanted to mention is Greg went through the steps really well, but one of the things that we learned as we trained people on doing the intervention and listened to them doing the intervention and watched them is that it, it actually takes a bit more than just saying, okay, I see you had a suicide attempt. I'm going to give you a safety plan. It really requires... Uh, some psychoeducation of the client, the veteran in this case, about why it is that a safety plan might be helpful. And if that requires describing a little bit about how suicidal crises come and go and how um, you need an emergency plan to get you to not in, help you not engage in, um, in suicidal behavior. We need to do a little bit of prep work with the patient before we launch into, oh, you made a suicide attempt, here's a safety plan. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's really helpful to think about it in this really uh, collaborative approach where the patient needs to understand why this is being developed and really get their buy-in in the process. Adam, so can I just add one more thing about that, too? Please. Yeah, I think one really important piece, too, is this idea of bridging and bridging between the ED visit and to outpatient care. And as, as Greg mentioned, for lots of individuals, it may be that they don't follow up in the ED. And so part of this intervention really is maximizing the relationship that was built in the ED to facilitate a transition into care. Because VA does have um, connected care and it is one healthcare system, we have some unique opportunities. The individuals that work in the ED are parts of the same teams and on the same medical staff as those who work in the mental health outpatient clinic. Doing this kind of study within this cohesive system is really an amazing opportunity and doesn't always exist outside the VA. Um, yeah, and to, to follow up on what Lisa said, although safety planning is a um, major part of the, the study that we did, there was a second part of it, which is the follow-up phone calls that we did with uh, individuals who were in our project. They left the ED, and we particularly focused on people who were not hospitalized because that was the group that we felt falls between the cracks, has to wait for their outpatient appointment, and may never come for um, more care. We did a series of calls. We tried to get to them within 72 hours of their discharge, and we did a series of very brief calls with them, very brief, to see how, to check in with them to see if they were still safe, to take a look at their safety plan, to see if they used it, did they need to revise it, and then to help facilitate um, engagement with care. And so these were not phone calls that where you just called up. They didn't, the person didn't answer, and you left a message, oh, hi, this is the ED calling, hope you're well. These were actual clinical calls where we made contact with the, the veteran. And, in fact, the folks who made the follow-up phone calls in the best cases were individuals who actually had met with um, the veterans in the ED. And so really trying to have this relationship to help bridge 
and provide one. I remember one of the vets called uh, the acute services coordinator, which was the name of the person who facilitated much of this, um, like their concierge, their VA concierge. So this idea of providing concierge level service to individuals to help them engage in mental health treatment. I love that. That's really great. Um, and I think it's a nice segue here to talk a little bit more about what was involved this study in this study and also the study design. Lisa, could you talk us through that a little bit closer? Sure. I think uh, one thing to note is when you're doing these kinds of interventions, um, it can be really hard to do something like a more traditional randomized clinical trial, and you really need to do a rigorous quasi-experimental design where everybody at one facility can get one intervention and everybody at the other facility perhaps gets treatment as usual. So this was a cohort comparison design um, where we had follow-up after six months, and there were five groups um, in which individuals got both the safety planning in the ED and the follow-up calls, and there were four sites where individuals got treatment as usual. And one thing that's important to note is that VA has a number of standards around what is treatment as usual between those requirements and the fact that we did continue to follow up with people. We would call that treatment as usual, um, enhanced treatment as usual. That's very helpful. And so uh, I believe you guys have done a good job touching on this, but why did we choose to do this study with veterans? I think a couple of different things. One, as Barbara mentioned, that VA was really out ahead trying to identify evidence-informed practices that could be brought into the system of care and really um, address suicide in a very proactive manner. And certainly uh, the fact that Jan reached out to Barbara and Greg, who were well-known in the field, um, it was a huge win for us. And the fact that they continue to work with us in the VA is a great thing. Um, and so bringing uh, the best of what we know about suicide prevention into the VA to address not only maybe increased challenges individuals are having while they transition out of the military, but perhaps challenges that individuals have had for a long time, older adults, you know, folks who have medical concerns that, that maybe we weren't doing as much as we could have in the ED before and trying to do even more. And I think I already mentioned also this idea of connected care. So whether that's, you know, from the ED to mental health, from the Veterans Crisis Line to the Suicide Prevention Coordinator, this one system of care with an integrated emergency medical record really does provide opportunities to provide cohesive treatment in, in all settings and connected care. Just to be really clear, Greg, will you take us through, I know we talked about uh, that the intervention group gets both safety planning intervention and follow-up. What did that look like in this study? And how did that compare to what the comparison group got? Okay, just to give a little more detail, uh, what would happen is that uh, veterans would come into the ED with some concern about suicidal ideation or suicide behavior. They were screened in the ED, and then the clinician in the ED determined that this person was at risk for suicide. Now, um, as we previously mentioned, um, some patients were admitted to the inpatient unit, while others were, could be determined to be discharged home safely or to follow-up care. And it was that group of patients who were discharged was um, the, focus of the, uh, the focus of the study. Um, so we had uh, project staff um, who were generally social workers and psychologists provide the intervention in the ED setting and then they made follow-up calls after discharge from the ED. These calls generally occurred within 72 hours of um, being discharged, and um, we continued these calls generally on a weekly basis until the person was engaged in care. 
And by that, we mean that the patient had actually attended an outpatient mental health appointment or substance uh, abuse um, uh, appointment. And so once they were engaged in, in care, the call stopped or the call stopped if the veteran no longer wished to be called. And so it's comparing that model, that two-pronged model of safety planning intervention plus the follow-up calls um, with the usual care. And um, the follow-up calls were generally brief, 15 to 20-minute calls that included um, a wellness check, um, assessment for suicide risk, and then review of the safety plan. Have you used it? If you had um, what was helpful, if you didn't, why didn't you use it um, if you needed to? And also there was some discussion about uh, how to engage people in um, follow-up care, talking about their motivation for going to treatment or problem-solving barriers to attending care. That's great. Really helpful to hear about this safety planning as a very sort of iterative process. It's not a one and done. It's a, it's, it involves revisiting what worked, what didn't work. Um, anything more you wanted to say about that? One of the things about the calls was that it wasn't just a single call. We tried to continue to do calls until they had at least one or two outpatient appointments or the, the veteran said, uh, he or she no longer needed the phone calls or wanted the calls. And pretty amazing is that the vast majority of, uh, of veterans were very, very responsive to the, these calls. They did, it wasn't like they just, you know, put their phone, um, they saw the, the phone call coming in and they sent it to voicemail. I, and I think, you know, as, as we continue this discussion, we'll talk about kind of next steps, but one thing that all of us think, and I'm going to speak for Barbara and Greg, which is kind of dangerous, but that, you know, I think that the relationship, I'll just say, I think that the relationship was important, you know, that, and we certainly can study that in the future to figure it out. But this idea that you had this person, it wasn't somebody that you didn't know from the VA, but this person that you knew that was calling you and tracking with you seemed to make a difference. And as I, as I said, we certainly can study that if you, if you had somebody in the ED and then different people making the phone calls, you could study whether it's kind of about the relationship or not, but that seemed important to, to me. Interesting. So let's turn to the findings. Barbara, what were you all looking at as far as outcomes and, and what did you all find? Because of the nature of the study, um, that it was basically a demonstration project, we used chart you know, records to get to determine our outcomes. And so we had two outcomes. We looked at suicide behavior reports and we looked at treatment engagement. And we got positive findings on both. The individuals in the intervention group ended up having uh, about 45% fewer suicide behavior reports in the six months following, uh, which is quite a, a large effect. And also, were much more likely to engage um, in outpatient care. And so then we looked at the kind of to try to understand, well, did safety planning then um, and the intervention lead to greater treatment engagement, and then did treatment engagement have the impact on suicide behaviors? And in fact, uh, what, seemed to, what seems to happen is that the intervention in and of itself has a direct impact on, uh, on the outcome. That is really fantastic to hear. So this is uh, really a promising positive findings. It, it's very promising and um, 
the uh, what I think is particularly important about this is that it is a, a relatively small, relatively non-labor intensive, and I say relatively because I don't mean no, <laughs> no, um, uh, you know, that there is no labor involved. There definitely needs to be resources devoted to this because clinicians have to be trained uh, to give a, a reasonable quality safety plan. And then if you want to follow this particular design that we used in our study, you, you need staff who is going to be assertively outreaching to people who visit the ED uh, to kind of be there, what I like to think of as the safety net for, uh, for the veterans. Yeah, I'm really glad you all are taking home the point that this is a really a two-pronged intervention and um, both components were involved in the success. And Barbara, could you tell us a little bit about um, some of the qualitative uh, feedback that you got from participants about the intervention? Um, a while ago, um, we were we became very interested in the impact of this of the intervention on um, on the veterans, and so Greg and I did a separate project where we did qualitative interviews of a, about 100 veterans who had had the intervention, and asked them what their experience was, what parts of the intervention were useful, and we found that that they actually found both parts incredibly helpful. One of the comments that we got, our, actually our most frequent comment um, when we asked them about safety planning was they said, and this was not one person, this was many people, that it saved their lives. And it is a comment that we continue to get. So there is something about this kind of intervention where, that you give to somebody when, who grapples with being suicidal on an ongoing basis to give them an emergency plan uh, that, that helps get them through that period of time. Really hey, great. Barbara, can you, I just remember some of that data too, and if this is wrong, they can cut it out, but Barbara, would you mind talking about, um, I think you asked individuals if they knew where their safety plans were after a good amount of time. Yes, so I, you know, I, I don't remember the exact figures, but um, virtually everybody, well, everybody remembered that they had a safety plan. Almost everybody could tell you the exact location that it was at that very moment. Many people made multiple copies of it. Over two-thirds of the people had used their safety plan at least once. So it was, it, it was a living, breathing document for them. The other thing that I would wanted to mention about the qualitative interviews, in terms of the follow-up phone calls, um, the frequent comment that they got was that, that we got about those was that they found them incredibly helpful and they found it amazing that somebody would actually reach out to them that cared enough to get through to them uh, to, to be persistent in contacting them. That it, made them feel that the VA actually cared about them. Wonderful. So Lisa, can you take us through the implications of this work um, in the VA, but also uh, to suicidal patients everywhere, and also where you see this research going next? Well, I mean, I, I think as Barbara and Greg have both highlighted, this intervention, which is an intervention that we expect that most providers could learn how to do, did seem to make a big difference in people's lives, both qualitative and quantitatively. 
it was meaningful to them and uh, they remembered who it was, they used it, and the numbers also support that. So the question in my mind begins to be like, how do we bring that research into EDs in the VA and outside the VA? Certainly many veterans get care outside the VA. And how do we facilitate that cohesive follow-up and, and engagement with folks till they get into care? And then, as I mentioned before, can we start to think about the different components of this? Are the follow-up calls really necessary? Is the safety planning the key piece? Are things different for different individuals? Do, do different individuals need uh, different levels of engagement to help them come to that first um, follow-up session? And then I think, in, you know, as always, trying to identify other like um, interventions that we could use in different settings that are perhaps also um, relatively I don't, you know, smaller lifts in terms of implementation that that could be implemented, let's say, on the way out the door from an inpatient hospital stay and doing safety planning, which is already VA standard, but then doing follow-up engagement calls or other things that we could do um, during periods of transition, uh, which are risky periods to help facilitate um, engagement and care. So, Lisa, I understand that these results are really being implemented by VA leadership. Can you tell us a little bit about how we're helping veterans in the emergency rooms at the VA? Yeah, Adam, actually, it's really exciting. Um, Leadership has been very tuned in to um, these findings. And, in fact, um, this resulted in a rollout of safety planning in all VA emergency departments. Um, The effort has been named SPED. It's called Safety Planning in Emergency Departments. And what it really um, is facilitating is that individuals who are seen in the emergency department who are identified at being at risk are now for sure within the emergency department setting having their safety plan updated and um, or they're having a safety plan completed for the first time. Um, and in some settings, this intervention limit, is not only limited to safety planning. What's happening is um, individuals in the ED are actually following up with veterans, making phone calls, and making sure that these individuals actually engage in care. That's fantastic. It's so cool to see these results go so quickly from being published to being actually uh, impacting care for veterans. So thanks for sharing that. And Greg, as Lisa mentioned, there's lots of opportunities for further research, but what are some things that clinicians can take away right now that really um, can begin to be used in in everyday practice? That's a great question. I, I think since safety planning intervention launched in 2008 in VA, one of the most important lessons we've learned about the implementation of safety planning from a health care system perspective is that fidelity to the intervention involves more than simply completing a piece of paper or a medical record template. It's really about taking a collaborative and understanding approach to addressing painful experiences and asking, uh, helping veterans to determine what to do during a crisis in a collaborative way. Um, One of the concerns that we've had has to do with quality of the intervention, and we know this from reviewing completed safety plan forms as well as listening to audio recordings of the safety planning interventions. There have been two published studies, two small published studies uh, conducted in VA on the quality of safety planning in medical records. One study found that the quality of safety plans was low and that higher safety plan quality scores actually predicted a decreased likelihood of future suicide behavior in VA. The other study found that the 
quality of safety plans ranged, um, but mostly, most were completed of moderate quality. And so with this focus on quality, the VA, uh, specifically the Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention, uh, recently developed a revised uh, medical record template with detailed instructions for safety planning. Uh, they offered uh, didactic training to use the template, and then Barbara and I and others co-authored a, a corresponding safety planning a manual that's been updated uh, to 2018 from the 2008 version. So we hope it will help to uh, to improve quality of safety plans, and we hope that additional training in uh, how to do um, good quality safety plans will, will result in improved um, quality of intervention as well as decrease in uh, suicide behaviors. Greg and Barbara, would you also mind talking about, I know we use paper often in the VA, write down um, safety plans and have veterans write them down, but I know you, you all have done some work on using um, apps and other ways to keep safety plans close to veterans who are using their cell phones. That's a great question, Lisa, and certainly there's a number of apps out there uh, that take the safety planning intervention and um, turn it into an app. Um, I think this really is individualized to the specific patient, so some patients prefer their safety plan be on an app or on their smartphone, where other patients prefer to have a written safety plan piece of paper um, that they can see and share. Um, so I think it really depends on the medium that the veteran is most likely to, um, to engage with. So we, we have an app that is called SafetyNet that is, that's the kind of the truest to the, the safety planning intervention. One of the things that we have found is that sometimes what people will do is they will have the piece of paper, but they'll also take a photo of that piece of paper. And so they will have it in their phone with them all the time. And people actually really like the piece of paper uh, for some reason in this. And so I can tell you of a, a couple examples where somebody, and uh, two examples come to mind. Somebody reached into their pocket, they were on a bridge getting ready to jump to, to kill themselves, and they reached into the into their pocket, they, they realized they had their safety plan in the pocket, pulled it out and said, okay, I'll try this, and left the bridge. And I, there was another, example of exactly the same thing. And so these are stories that are just um, told to us that are just, you know, they, you know, people let me know about this or Greg know about this kind of reaction that people have. So if, if we have these few examples of this, I'm sure that it's happening many other times. So like Greg said, I think that um, it depends on what the particular veteran prefers. I think apps are fantastic but there's something about the paper document. And uh, people end up making lots of copies of it. They put it on their refrigerator. They put it in their bedside stand. It, you know, it, it depends on the, the particular person, whether they are comfortable having it out visible or not. Mm, very powerful anecdote. Um, and I, I, as we wind down, I really want to thank you all for really breaking this 
safety planning intervention plus follow-up study down for us today and also give you an opportunity to kind of give us any closing thoughts before we let you go. Um, Lisa, would you like to start? Well, I just, I guess I just want to thank Barbara and Greg for uh, their continued partnership, and I learned uh, so much and continue to learn so much about suicide prevention from them and appreciate their willingness to uh, take everything they know and bring it to the VA. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate the opportunity to do this podcast and also the opportunity in VA to do training, implementation, and research. It's a wonderful organization to do research for suicide prevention. So thank you. And, and I would just uh, like to end by saying that um, it, to me it has always felt like a great honor uh, to work within the VA and to help people who have served our country. And um, the, the other thing that I would say is that it's the way I think about this intervention is that something little can do a lot. And th that would be my takeaway point from this, that it's a small intervention that can have a big impact. Well, we're really glad that you all were able to join us today. And of course, we're gonna have some links to accompany the podcast so folks can dive in deeper and uh, feel free to reach out to any of us with questions, comments, or feedback. Um, thanks for joining us today. Please take a moment to subscribe, share it with your colleagues. And until next time, join us for more interviews on important work in suicide prevention and resilience.